there is a famous book by Charles Dickens, commonly known as A Christmas Carol. Why am I talking about Christmas in May? <laughs> It'll make sense eventually, I think. Um, you might recognize it as a movie instead of a book. Even Disney has a version of it. And this book focuses on a character named Ebenezer Scrooge, who is an old man who hoards all his wealth and despises Christmas. The book opens on a Christmas Eve in London, showing Scrooge refusing dinner from his nephew, turning away men seeking donations for the poor, and resentfully allowing his overworked clerk Christmas Day off, revealing his ugly and selfish heart. If you know the story, later that evening, he's visited by the ghost of his former business partner and the spirits of Christmas past, present, and future. And Dickens' story centers around these encounters, which are designed to open his eyes to the reality of his own heart, revealed the sealed fate of his partner, and encourage him to change in order to avoid the same fate. The interesting thing about this story by Charles Dickens is that if you've ever read it or you've seen the movie, it has a unique way of causing those who are reading or watching to examine their own hearts. As they see this man observing his past life, the present results of his decisions, and the future outcome should he continue down the path he is heading. And our passage today in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, has some similarities to Dickens' work. Because what we'll see is Jesus show his opponents the truth about their past, their present, and their future, exposing the reality of their hearts. And like watching or reading Dickens' work, as we look at their hearts, we are challenged to consider our own response to Jesus. What we'll see in this passage is that it centers around a confrontation with the religious leaders of Israel and their rejection as, of Jesus as their Messiah. And what I want us to consider today is three things Jesus does to illuminate the reality of their rejection. As he gives a question to show the substance of their rejection, a parable to show the truth of their rejection, and a conclusion to show the significance of their rejection. Now, before we get to these, though, look with me at how Luke sets the stage in Luke chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, I'll pause there for a moment and just notice a few things in this opening. First, notice that Jesus was teaching and preaching the gospel in the temple. Note these vital aspects of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' teaching, especially in places of worship, is a consistent theme throughout his life and Luke's gospel. We see him teaching in the synagogues in Luke chapters 4, 6, and 13. Preaching the gospel is also vitally important 
for Jesus. As it's part of what Jesus read of him fulfilling from Isaiah's prophecy in Luke 4.18, it was also something Jesus gave as the reason he left those coming to Simon's house for healing in Luke 4.43. Further, it was part of the signs he gave for John the Baptist to recognize him in Luke 7.22, a primary part of the apostles' ministry in Luke 9.6, and the essential thing happening since John's ministry in Luke 16.60. You can see teaching and preaching the gospel were vital aspects of Jesus' ministry. And therefore, they should be vital aspects of ours as well. Second, I want you to notice who this confrontation is with. We read that it's the chief priest, the scribes, and the scribes with the elders. These three groups composed what is called the Sanhedrin, which was essentially the highest religious court in Israel. They were the authority over religious matters. What you may not remember is that they were named by Jesus when he foretold his death in Luke 9, 22. Lastly, notice the connection with verse 47 of last week's passage in chapter 19. We read, And he, Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. And this shows us that our passage is connected to what Joe preached last week and how we saw Luke revealing that Jesus is Lord, King, and Prophet, calling us to respond. This passage essentially is an extension of that further inviting a response from us. But this response is a vitally important response. So with that stage set, Let's examine what Jesus does within this interaction, starting with a question to show the substance of their rejection. Read verses 1 and 2 with me again. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, and who it is that gave you this authority. And what we don't see in these verses is that the word for tell us is in a tense in the original language that signifies a command to respond immediately. So the Sanhedrin is coming to Jesus and saying, you tell us as the authority over Israel What authority you have to be doing the things that you're doing. Things like how Jesus drove out the sellers from the temple. Or the things he was teaching and preaching about. And this demand here in verse 2 shows that the confrontation here in this passage is ultimately about authority. Does Jesus have the authority to be doing the things he was doing? And therefore, does Jesus have the authority over their lives? Now, we know they don't believe he does. Because Luke has already shown significant proof of the clear evidence of Jesus' authority throughout his gospel 
And these scribes and these Pharisees, these leaders would have seen and known of these proofs. Let me just give you a sampling of the authority we've seen of Jesus. In Luke 4.32, we see that Jesus taught with a recognized authority. People marveled at it. In Luke 4.36, the demons respond to his authority. In Luke 5.24, he revealed the authority to forgive sins as he heals a paralytic after saying his sins have been forgiven. And in Luke 7.8, a Roman centurion even recognized the authority of Jesus. And that's just a few chapters. Yet time after time again, they have denied these proofs this evidence of his authority. So the question they are asking Jesus is an empty question, probably designed to trap him. But what we see is Jesus knows this. He's so wise. And he turns it back on them, showing the substance of their rejection. Look with me at verses 3 through 7. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. Jesus asked them to first tell him whether John the Baptist's baptism came from God or from man. And this is a beautifully designed question by Jesus because it doesn't only expose the foolish pride in their hearts, but it also shows the call of repentance by John that they failed to heed because of their pride. Just look at the foolishness of their pride on display here. In verses 5 through 6, they hold a discussion together regarding what their response should be to Jesus. If they say that this baptism was from God, they're held liable for not responding to it. If they say John wasn't from God, they would be stoned by the people they wanted to rule over because the people saw John as a prophet. You see, they know the bind Jesus has put them in, and so they plead a false ignorance. Their fear of people and their denial of the truth right in front of their eyes, interestingly enough, puts them in a position to lack authority on the subject matter. So Jesus refuses to answer them. Verse 8, And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, what I want to point out is how the question by Jesus is actually an answer to their question. Because if you remember from the beginning of Luke's gospel, we have been given the significance of John's ministry. Back in Luke chapter 1, verses 76 and 77, we read a prophecy of John that says, And you, child, 
will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. This prophecy is pointing back to Isaiah chapter 40, which speaks of a prophet going before the Lord himself who is coming to deliver his people. We also see back in John's ministry that he spoke of being a precursor to someone mightier, someone greater than he. And he bore witness when Jesus came that Jesus was the Son of God. Henry Morris sums it up well as he comments, Jesus responded to the challenge of these religious leaders by reminding them of how they had ignored the teaching of John the Baptist. John had clearly, in the hearing of their delegates, stressed that the authority of Jesus had come from God. I'm not a chess player, but this is the inevitable point in a chess match when you're out of moves and your opponent says those dreaded words, checkmate. You've got to love Jesus. Through this question and their refusal to answer, he reveals that the substance of their rejection was a hardness of heart that rejected the truth clearly shown to them. It exposed the hypocrisy in their hearts and it opened the door for the parable that ensued, which digs deeper into this rejection. So let's look next at how Jesus gives a parable to show the truth of their rejection. Pick back up with me in verses 9 through 15. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants, went into another country and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Let's pause in the middle of that verse. When we study parables, one aid in understanding them properly is to try to identify who and what the parable represents. This will be the start of next week's passage, but I want you to jump down to verse 19 and look there with me quickly. We read that the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So we can know this parable is against the religious leaders of Israel. And based on their response in verse 19, it's safe to assume that they are the tenants. 
We can identify Jesus as the beloved Son and God the Father as the owner of the vineyard. What is the vineyard, though? Well, you may know Israel as God's people are commonly referred to as a vine in God's vineyard all throughout the Old Testament, particularly one that has not produced the necessary yield. So the vineyard appears to represent God's kingdom full of God's people. What about the servants? Well, again, throughout the Old Testament, we see most of Israel and especially its leaders not listening to and rejecting prophet after prophet that God sent to them. And Luke has already shown in chapters 6, 11, and 13 that the prophets sent to Israel were hated, scorned, stoned, and killed. So the servants are the prophets. This all shows that the authority of Jesus comes from the same authority of the prophets that they rejected as well. It is the very owner of the vineyard to whom the people of Israel belong, God himself. You see, Israel was called out by God to be a people that bore fruit. Yet when the Lord sent prophet after prophet to see the fruit born, they rejected those who sent, and they eventually rejected the Son. And by doing so, the truth of their rejection is that they were rejecting the authority of God. Now pay attention, though, to verse 14. Notice that when these tenants saw the son coming, they knew he was the heir. And they killed him in spite of knowing that. You see, this is one aspect of the profoundness of this truth for the leaders to wrestle with in this parable. They knew Jesus was the son of God. And they denied him for their own selfish greed. The Apostle John makes this very clear in John 12, 42 through 43, where he writes, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Why did they ultimately reject Jesus? They loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. They longed for their own authority as opposed to submitting to the authority of God. And that's the ultimate reason everyone rejects Jesus. But there's another aspect of the truth of their rejection that I want to bring out. Just consider the picture painted of this landowner and how unusual it would be for one to respond in the way that he did. He displays so much patience and mercy as he sends servant after servant after servant to these horrible tenants. Even the sending of his own son was a display of this patience and mercy 
You see, the other aspect of what they rejected was the abundant mercy of God that had been displayed for them for years and years and years. The truth of their rejection is that they were rejecting both the authority of God and the mercy of God. Finally, let's see how Jesus gives a conclusion to show the significance of their rejection. Pick back up in the middle of verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. Jesus asks another question, this time designed to show the significance of their rejection. What will the owner do to these tenants after they reject the son? He will destroy them and give the vineyard to others. The mercy given to the tenants runs out eventually. They are destroyed and others are given the blessings. Don't miss the weight here. Destroy is not a light term. It's not a slap on the wrist and you're sent on your way. It is a devastating judgment. Most commentators agree this is likely a partial reference to the judgment of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 because of how Jesus weeps over the city at the end of Luke 19 and speaks of its judgment in chapter 21. The tenants will be judged and the blessings given to others. And their response is, surely not. Surely that's not what would happen, which is, I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous. Like, <laughs> tenants like this, that would have happened if I was the owner, like, two years ago, you know? <laughs> so, I'm not that patient. We don't know if it's the crowd that yells out, surely not, or the leaders, only that it seems like a shocking conclusion to them for some reason. So, Jesus grabs their attention and he makes sure that they see the testimony of Scripture about this. Look at verses 17 and 18. But he looked at them directly. He looked at them directly. And he said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Devastating judgment. He starts with a reference to Psalm 118.22, which interestingly enough is the same psalm the shouts of Hosanna were taken from as Jesus entered Jerusalem. This testimony of Psalm 118 is significant because it identifies Jesus as not only the rejected Son of God, but also the rejected cornerstone on which the whole temple of God rests. 
It's not just a rejection of the truth about Jesus. It's not just a rejection of the authority of God over their lives. It's a rejection of their only hope. Because if your life isn't built on the cornerstone, it will crumble. The next reference in verse 18, Jesus makes to Isaiah 8, 14, and 15. And it shows that it's detrimental to reject Jesus. Both ideas in verse 18 symbolize judgment. The term for broken to pieces literally means to winnow, to scatter, or to pulverize. Winnowing is a common concept for judgment throughout the Old Testament. There's no hope for those falling on the cornerstone. There's no hope for the one who's crushed by this stone. Make no mistake. Nothing but eternal judgment comes to the one who rejects the mercy of God and Jesus Christ. There is a day coming when everyone's hearts will be laid bare before the Lord. And you will either enter the joy of heaven with Christ because you trusted in Him, or you will enter eternal judgment because you rejected the mercy that he has shown to you over and over. As one pastor concludes, our attitude toward Jesus is everything. We will either fall or rise according to our faith or lack of faith in him. If we fall over him, he will fall on us, bringing eternal destruction upon our souls. A question, a parable, and a conclusion to illuminate the reality of the rejection of Jesus. As we will see while we continue in Luke, they're not like Scrooge from Dickens' story. They don't change. They don't repent. They fulfill the words spoken about them becoming instrumental in Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. But praise God for his crucifixion and praise God that it's not the end because it was necessary for him to rise to be the living cornerstone that we are all built on. And so this brings me to what we must understand as we now, 2,000 years later, look back on their rejection today is that their rejection points to the necessity of saving faith. As we see the Sanhedrin's rejection of the truth about Jesus and we feel its significance, it shows the need for us to respond differently. What are we doing with the testimony of John the Baptist? John came proclaiming a message of repentance, calling all who would hear, to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. Have you truly confessed your sin to God and turned from them, seeking the forgiveness that he offers? John's message also calls for everyone to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you truly seen Jesus? Have you beheld him in His glory, have you seen him slain for you on the cross?
And have you turned to him for forgiveness and tasted the mercy and the grace of God? This is saving faith and what we all need. When we look at this passage and we see the Sanhedrin's rejection of the authority of God the Father and God the Son, we should sense our own temptation to reject the authority of God over our own lives. So let me have you consider, is there any area in your life where you are rejecting the authority of God that has clearly been shown through the pages of Scripture? That he's calling you to change this, morning, this day. Have you yet to bow the knee to his authority at all? Or do you still long for your own authority? Now, we can clearly misunderstand God's authority. It's not like what we see in the world. Just look at this parable, at the merciful, long-suffering God presented in this passage. Look throughout the pages of Scripture at God. God's authority is always perfectly just, wonderfully benevolent, magnificently loving, and always out for your true joy. That's the authority we're submitting to. I was reading Psalm 119 a few days ago, and I just love the way it begins. Consider how the psalmist speaks of those under the authority of our God in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 119. He says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. Blessed, blessed, blessed in the Hebrew is the truest and purest state of joy. It's the happiest of happiness. This is what comes to those who gladly submit to the authority of God. True and everlasting joy because we are declared blameless as we place our trust in Christ. So will you respond differently today than the leaders did 2,000 years ago to the authority of God? Will you hear and heed his word over your life? Will you submit to all of his ways? That's what we need to wrestle with because that is saving faith. You see, our passage today warns us of the devastating consequences for those who stumble over the cornerstone and reject him. But the good news is there's an alternative response to this cornerstone that the scriptures constantly relay. And the apostle Peter highlights what this response is in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6. While quoting Isaiah 28, 16, he says this, he says, as you come to him, Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Listen to this. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
instead of destruction from stumbling over the cornerstone, we can instead come to Christ, believing in him, and we will not be put to shame. What's the difference in these two responses? Saving faith. So will you believe in Christ today as the cornerstone and not be put to shame? As I mentioned earlier, this passage serves as a moment to examine our hearts, to see what we're truly doing with Jesus. So let's let it serve as a call to consistent repentance turning from our sin, beholding Jesus Christ, submitting to the authority of God, and clinging to Him him as our only hope and our true source of joy. Would you stand with me as I pray this over us? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercy you have shown to us Mercies that are new every day. Mercies that remind us of your patience, your kindness, your love. We ask that you would open our eyes to sin that we need to repent of. We ask that you would open our eyes to ways we do not submit to your authority. We ask that you would give us another taste of the glory of Jesus as we behold him and fill us with joy and life. We ask this according to your son's matchless and holy name. Amen.